Our thoughts this morning are entitled, What Brings Salvation? And will come from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. As you know, we continue our series through Paul's letter to Titus. And in doing so today, we come to some comforting and also instructive language that we find in Titus chapter 2, in which Paul both expresses and explains the cause of salvation, but also the effects of salvation in a person's life. As we introduce these thoughts to you today, these passages to you, we'll say that we intend to divide these passages over the next two messages, focusing today on verses 11 through 13, and Lord willing, next Sunday, on verses 14 and 15. So we'll begin reading today in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. After reading those verses, you probably see why we're going to take that over a couple of weeks so we have more time to expand on some of the latter themes of that language, the Lord's second coming, exactly who is returning to this earth again, the great God of heaven, and what he did for us in giving himself upon the cross that he might redeem us, us being, we being a peculiar people who are, ought to be, <laughs> zealous of good works. But our focus today is on verses 11 through 13. To summarize the thought that we want to share with you today, if you want a way to explain everything that we are going to say and try to unpack for you from this language, the grace of God brings a salvation that teaches grace brings salvation, and that salvation teaches us some things. But we'll spend the rest of the time that we have together speaking very specifically on each various phrase that we brought to your hearing that we summarized with that statement. Looking first to verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Occasionally, as we introduce a passage to you, we look to the end of the passage before we begin explaining the beginning of the passage. And this is going to be one of those explanations that we first want to speak on all men before we speak about grace, grace that brings salvation. And so what does it mean then by all men? The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. As we think about God's grace bringing salvation to all men, we give you a three different explanations of this, two that are not to be understood as the meaning of this text, and then the last, which is to be understood as the meaning of this text. First of all, this passage does not say, nor does it imply, that God's grace has brought salvation, or published rather, or offered salvation to all men. Notice, and sometimes it's worded that way, that the grace of God that offers salvation has appeared to all men, but we know that salvation has not been published to all men, for all men have not heard the message. But greater than that, whatever Paul has in mind is not a mere offer or a publication of the facts of the matter of salvation, but this is a salvation that actually brings this is a grace that actually brings salvation to those to whom it appears. I don't know if that made sense to you. We'll say it again, maybe in a little different way. God's grace 
Whatever this passage is saying is something that actually brings salvation to those to whom it appears. And so the grace bringing salvation, you might say, is completely and absolutely efficacious or effectual in saving. Sometimes, again, this verse is worded in such a way or reworded in such a way as to say God's grace that brings salvation has been offered to all men, but you notice that it doesn't say that. It says the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men, and it has taught them. That means that it was effectual in what it was intended to do. And so the first point that we want to express is that this isn't teaching some universal publication or offer of salvation to all men if they would only react to it in a certain way. Whatever Paul has in mind is effectual even to the extent of teaching them to deny ungodliness and to look for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's effectual, the grace of God in bringing salvation is effectual in the lives of all that it is given to. Secondly, as we consider what Paul doesn't mean by all men, this isn't saying all males. Praise God. There are numerous female recipients of salvation in the four Gospels, in the book of Acts, and referenced in the epistles. And so... It's not that the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all males. Now, we use that word men in Scripture to have reference to mankind or humanity. And that's not a biased term. That's not a very popular word to use, mankind, in today's world. Oh, that's misogynist. Oh, you think higher of men than you think of women because you call it mankind and not, I guess, themkind. I don't know what they would say today. Humankind. Well, you can't have human without man. And that's when people begin to trigger and look at the sky and scream. But in the beginning, God made man, Adam, male and female. And we talk about humankind as mankind. And so... All men would have reference to humanity, or the word men would have reference to humanity, and not merely all males. And again, this is very clearly depicted in the Gospels and the book of Acts. Also, as we think about all men under that point, Paul doesn't have reference then all human beings. Why do we know that Paul doesn't have reference to all human beings when he says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men? Simply put, we know that all human beings are not saved. Now, under that category of human beings that are not saved, you have those who are not presently born again, but will one day be born again and therefore saved. But you also have people who are described as goats, people who are referred to as their father, of their father the devil, people who are not of his sheep, There are people in the world who will never know Christ. And when Jesus returns again, according to Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, these people will be gathered on his left hand, that is to say his left side, and they will be banished from his presence for eternity. There are people in the world who are undoubtedly unsaved, and they never will be saved because hell is a place and it will not be empty. I heard it said once that, you know, we don't like the concept of hell. We don't know who will be there, but we at least know the devil will be there. Well, I'm going to tell you there's going to be a lot more people there than just the devil. There are people in hell. God endures them, the wicked, with much long-suffering in this world but they are vessels who will experience the wrath of God for their unjust, unrighteous, wicked, and sinful works. Unless we become too overglorious about that, understand that except for the grace of God, that's where every single one of us would be, myself included. So we know that Paul doesn't mean all humanity. That the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all humanity. 
because the grace of God has not brought salvation to all humanity. And whatever he has in mind here is a salvation that appears or a grace that appears and actually brings salvation to those to whom it is brought. When grace comes to an individual, that individual is given salvation. And so that automatically excludes some universal publishing because a universal publishing wouldn't bring salvation. And secondly, it excludes all humanity or all males because we know females are saved and we know not every human being is saved. And so we take the word of God and we read a passage based upon fundamental principles that are taught and revealed very clearly through the word, and we'll find that with the language of the text and the context and what we know through other passages, the meaning of a text then can become very clear to us. So what does Paul have reference to here when he says, "...the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men?" I present to you the third option. Paul's meaning here is very clearly, from the context, all types or all sorts of men. For the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all, read that, all sorts or all types of men. Now remember that we're reading a letter that is written by Paul to one of his sons in the ministry. We've studied through the second chapter of Titus together last week and the week before. And as we considered this language together, what types of men, you might ask, or humans, you might say, has been, have been spoken of in this passage up until this point? Well, let's back up and look at some expressions from this portion of God's Word. The aged men, that they might be sober. There's one sort or type of man. The aged women, likewise, verse 3, there's another type of human that they may teach the young women. There's a third classification of human being, the younger women. Verse 6, young men, likewise, exhort to be sober-minded. There's a fourth classification of human. Verse 9, exhort servants. There's your fifth qualification of human. To be obedient unto their own masters, there's your sixth type or classification of human being. Now you might wonder, does the definition of this word all actually allow for that understanding? And the answer to that question is yes, it does. This comes from a Greek word that commonly translates all or whole in the English language, but in the Greek language that word commonly meant some of all types or all of a certain type. And then you look in the context and you can clearly see what the writer or the speaker has reference to. There are times when all of Judea went out to hear John the Baptist preach. And that word all translates from the same word. In Romans eight twenty eight, when it says all things work together for good to them that love God, it's the same word for all. And certainly we know there are things in the world that don't work for your good, like your own personal unrighteousness. That does not work for your good. That is destructive to you. And so all, always, has to be defined by the context. And the context is very clearly all types of people. All types of people have had grace appear to them and we'll explain what that word appear means in just a moment, all types of people have had grace appear to them, and when grace appeared to them, grace brought salvation. Grace brings salvation, and this salvation teaches you some things. Now, as we think about, and I want to expand upon this point, God's grace bringing salvation to all men, that is to say all types of men, young, old. The book of Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 gives us a glimpse into glory, and this is before the throne of God. As John is before the throne of God in a vision on the Isle of Patmos on the Lord's day, 
He sees God's throne and he sees a book and no one is worthy to take the book and to open the book. And as he weeps and laments that, one of the elders points him to a lamb that it is, has been slain. And as we know through other passages, Christ as soon as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world and the mind and purpose of God, Christ was the redemptive offering to save God's people from their sins. John looks, and this lamb is worthy to take the book and to open the book, and they begin, all of these elders and all of these people, to sing to the lamb that was slain. And notice what they sing to the lamb that was slain. They sing a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and has redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Now let's think about those groups for just a moment. First of all, they are redeemed out of by the blood of the Lamb. Christ's blood has been shed for them and he has saved them from their sins. They've been washed whiter than snow by the blood of the Lamb. But they've been redeemed by Christ out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. Those two words, out of, are very important. Not everyone in every kindred, tongue, and people, and nation are saved by Christ, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Again, there is a hell, and it is not vacant. However, He has redeemed people out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And so out of every single kindred upon planet earth, the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed someone. Or, as we know so very clearly, many someones. Think in your family, your kindred, all of the people that you know who very obviously and clearly have been saved by the grace of God, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Many someones out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. The word kindred has reference to, by one definition of it, a grandfather group, which is a very interesting definition that brings salvation to the grace of God that brings salvation to far more people than you might imagine. I remember the words of God to Abraham in the book of Genesis, chapter 12, as he tells Abraham that he's to get out of his country and from his kindred and from his father's house. He calls him, according to the book of Joshua, the last chapter in the book of Joshua, out of an idolatrous land, out of the practice of idolatry to wander as a stranger and a pilgrim in a land by faith. He wanders by faith in a land that God would give to his children and their children, and he would make a great nation of him. And through him, as we see in verse 3 of chapter 12, I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed." All families of the earth would be blessed through, in some way, Abraham. You might wonder, what has Abraham done to bless you in your personal life? Have you ever thought about that? There are a lot of people in the world that take this to mean the nation of Israel would be a blessing, and if anyone curses Israel, God will curse them, and if anyone blesses Israel, God will bless them. And because of that, you even have prosperity gospel preachers in the world today that invent ministries to help people in the land of Israel just so they think God will make them more wealthy in this world. And you think, I'm kidding, but I'm not. I wish I were. God isn't saying that I'll bless people who do kind things for the nation of Israel in the year 2021. He has a redemptive purpose in view in these statements. First of all, we notice the singularity of that language, I will bless thee, Abraham, and make thy name great, Abraham, and thou, Abraham, shall be a blessing. 
It doesn't say you or ye. It says thou and thee. That's a singular term, meaning that what God says, he says exclusively to Abraham. I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And so Abraham departs. How are all families of the earth blessed through Abraham? Because through Abraham, eventually, the Lord Jesus Christ would be born into the world, and out of every family, there would be people to whom the grace of God would appear and bring salvation, and they would be saved from their sins, redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed because it's through Abraham that Christ would be born into the world. Christ is the promised seed of Abraham, and you are the body of Christ. You are included in some of the promises that God gave to Abraham over and over in his life after he called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And so Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred. The word kindred means family. All families of the earth shall have a blessing through that seed of Abraham that is the Lord Jesus Christ. There are people that are redeemed out of every tongue. That is to say, every language. Have you ever studied how many languages there have been in the history of the world? Now listen, what I'm about to tell you is not very popular in Christianity today because we have this idea that Jesus can never and has never saved anyone without our help. But I read in this passage that there are people redeemed by Christ out of every language. It doesn't say most, it says every language. All of a certain type, every language. There are people saved by Christ who have spoken every language that is known to exist among men. There are thousands of languages that have been spoken by men. And among those languages, there have been people that have been called by God who have been given salvation as God's grace appeared unto them. That's not twisting the text. You'd have to twist it to say otherwise. And people and nation out of every country in the world, there are people who have been called by God's grace. No wonder in this same book, in chapter 7 and verse 9, John looks and he sees a great multitude which no man could number of all nations, meaning out of all nations and kindreds and people, and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes, which is indicative of the cleansing that they have received through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they cry with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. When we read in Titus chapter 2 that the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men, I want you to understand exactly what Paul is saying there, all sorts of men, people out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. There's so many other passages that we could share along those lines. In Christ, there's neither bond nor free. Those are two classifications of men, and you find them in this passage, the servants and the masters, bond or free. In our present day, there is no such thing as servitude if you can't pay back a debt, but we do have prisons full of people. You know, there are many people who end up in jail because they are a flat-out, unregenerate, carnal person who commits heinous crimes, and in prison, God calls them by His grace. A dear friend of mine online is someone who, while he was in a prison for committing a crime, he's a felon, became convicted of his sin and God revealed himself to him and he was converted and began studying the word of God and 
Now he's a fervent defender of God's word. And it began while he was in a prison, bond nor free, Jew nor Greek. Those are two classifications. And this day, the most important classification, if you were a Jew, male nor female. Male nor female, man or woman. In Christ, there's neither bond nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, but we are all one in Christ. He saves people out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. And as he saves them out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue, they are now one in him. They are the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has died for them. I'm resisting the temptation to get on a contemporary issue tirade. But we are so panicky about all the American issues in this world. Understand, there are things that are greater than your identity as a United States citizen, namely your identity in Christ. And we ought to have more in common with people who are not even American. Maybe they don't have the same political or even economic ideas that we do. We ought to have more in common with them than we do atheistic, conservative, capitalists who... Sing, I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. Why? Because there's some greater bond between us. We are in Christ. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all sorts of human, all sorts of men. God's grace that brings salvation hath appeared to all types. Next in this verse, the grace of God brings salvation. God doesn't try to save his people. God brings his people salvation. The grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all sorts of men, teaching them to deny ungodliness and to look to yearn for, as it were, the second coming. More on that in a moment. As we think about God's grace bringing salvation, grace is defined, as you very well know, as God's unmerited favor. This means you are saved completely without any merit of your own. We are not saved by our worth, our self-worth. We are not saved by personal righteousness because our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We are not saved by the things that we do because there's no law that could be given to take away sin. We're condemned by the law because we are sinners. We are sinners not because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are born of sinners who were born of sinners who were the product of Adam and Eve in their image, in the image of Adam, were our ancestors born and we are merely Adam multiplied, conceived in sin and shapen in iniquity, as David said in the Psalms. We are not saved by our decisions. We are not saved by our allegiances. We are not saved by our church membership or our keeping of the ordinances, we are saved by grace and grace alone. And grace, by definition, is God's free and unmerited favor. Somebody doesn't start saying amen, I'm going to close this book and go in yonder. I mean. It's so very clear in Scripture that we are saved by God's grace. And there's so many implications of that. It's just an absolute biblical fact. Even your knowledge of Him, your belief in Him, is a result of the salvation that He has given you by grace. Everything you know of Him is by His grace. Thank you for the amens. I feel better now. 
All these masks, I can't even see smiles. It's like preaching to mannequins. I at least want mannequins that love grace. <laughs> Liven you up a little bit. Salvation by grace is an indisputable biblical fact. If anyone ever comes and says, yeah, but you've got to do X, Y, Z, it tells you they automatically, you automatically know that they do not understand what salvation by grace is all about. I want to notice this from the book of Ephesians because Paul's writing is very pointed, very clear. Let's go to chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians. I want you to notice all the times the word grace appears and how everything that we have in salvation is attributed to grace. Blessed be the God... Well, let me back up a verse. Let me back up a verse. Verse 2, Ephesians 1. Grace be to you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. It's a blessing, and blessings are by what? Grace. According as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world... Beloved child of God, God chose you before creation. That ought to blow your mind. God chose me knowing how wicked and despicable and wretched that I would be in my own sinfulness, my own carnality. As Adam multiplied, he chose me before the world began because he loved me. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. How does a wretched, rotten sinner suddenly appear holy and without blame before God in love? Well, this brings us to redemption in a moment. But first, he has predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. You were chosen in Christ that you should be holy and without blame before the Father in love. You're predestinated under the adoption of children by Christ. That is to say, you have been predestinated, your destiny set beforehand to be a child, an adopted child of God by Jesus Christ to himself according to the, the good works that you would do, the decisions that you would make. No, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. The common language in American Christendom today is you need to accept Jesus, but I'm more concerned with whether or not Jesus has made me acceptable to God. To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Grace, grace, and more grace. We are saved by grace. Ephesians chapter 2, God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, Paul would say. But look at verse 9. God, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light, through the gospel. The gospel brings this work of Christ in your life to light. Christ himself hath abolished death. And this salvation that we have received, the abolishing of death, is because he has saved us and called us. That's redemption and regeneration. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ before the world began. That's election and predestination. The Bible is 
as clear as the air in this room that salvation is by grace. As we think about salvation being by grace, so many times we hear, well, it's by grace, but you have to do X, Y, Z to receive that grace or X, Y, Z to enter into that grace. I want you to notice the book of Romans chapter 11. This is talking about Israel and Paul in this context, Romans 9 through 11 talks about Israelites and his heart for them and some of them that do belong to God and some of them that don't belong to God and the children of promise as opposed to just natural descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he says in verse 5, Even so then at this present time there is a remnant according to the election of what? Grace. And if by grace it is no more of works... If salvation is by grace, it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. That means if it is by grace, it cannot include or involve any work whatsoever. You say, we just got to be baptized. That's just one work. Then salvation would be by baptism, which is a work and not by grace. Regardless of the command, if it is... Of grace, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more of grace, otherwise work is no more work. If it is of work, it can include grace, otherwise work is no more work. You back up a couple of chapters and you you see this very clearly depicted in the lives of Jacob and Esau. The children being not yet born, verse 11 of Romans 9, neither having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Now these were two rotten, wretched men, Jacob and Esau. did a radio program about this a couple of weeks ago, and I would encourage you to go listen to that podcast as it lives now on our church website. Suffice it to say, Jacob and Esau were both absolutely deplorable individuals. Neither of them deserved God's favor. But before they had done any good works, God had elected Jacob, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is God wrong for leaving Esau where he was and rescuing Jacob? God forbid! For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Think about it this way. If a wealthy man passes by and he chooses to give one homeless man who refuses to work a sandwich and not another homeless man who refuses to work, it's his to do with as he pleases, and neither of them deserved either thing to begin with. So then, the conclusion, it is not of him that willeth, that's your desire, it there being salvation, is not of him that wills, nor of him that runneth, that is to say your actions, but of God that showeth mercy. Mercy and grace are sister doctrines in Scripture. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve, Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. And God has given us richly both of His mercy and His grace. And in context of salvation, you often hear these two coupled together. God in His love, His mercy, and His grace has saved His people from their sins. Now let's turn back to the book of Titus chapter 2. The grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all types of men. Now by the way, if you are saved by God's grace, then you don't have to worry about what's going to happen to you when you depart this life. You don't have to lay down at night and be consumed with anxiety Have I joined the right group? Have I believed the right message? Have I done this or that and checked off all of the boxes? Think about that dying thief on the cross. 
being executed for thievery. At one moment, he's reviling Christ. At the next moment, he's saying, Lord, Lord, I know that you're innocent. Remember me. And what does Jesus tell him? You know, you just didn't live a righteous enough life. No, he says, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. If you know this truth, it sets you free. It delivers you. It comforts you. It gives you rest. Why do you think life in Christ in Hebrews is referred to as a Sabbath? What did the nation of Israel do on the seventh day? They rested from all of their works. When you understand that salvation is completely through the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you know Him and love Him, it's because He first loved you, and the work is already accomplished in your heart, what do you do? You rest. You rest. How has grace appeared? We know by this point what all means. It means some of all types, all sorts of men. We know that salvation is by grace. So what then specifically does it mean that the grace has appeared and brought salvation? Now, there are many opinions on this text. One interesting opinion that I read was in the commentary of the Greek scholar and Commentary of A.T. Robertson, and he had an interesting take, believing that this passage referred to the first advent of Christ. In other words, the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared. He took that to mean at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was an interesting opinion. And if someone preached it that way, I would be offended in the least. Because we do have the second advent of Christ mentioned later in this passage. But I believe that Paul has reference to something here very personal, a personal lesson, a personal appearing of saving grace, a personal teaching. Think about it. The grace of God, if that were the first coming of Christ, Christ has, been, has appeared in the world, but some people that saw him didn't learn. They were of their father, the devil. This passage is describing the new birth individually, vitally, and personally in the lives of all who are saved. The grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all sorts of men, teaching them. Think about the personal nature of that. Teaching them. Grace appears... Grace teaches, and we'll talk about what it teaches as we conclude our thoughts today. But this is a grace that teaches. Interestingly enough, this word, appeared, comes from the Greek word epiphany, which is the word from which we get the English word epiphany. When someone has an epiphany, what is it to them? Aha! And so sometimes this word in the original language meant a shining, when light suddenly shines. Epiphany. What happened to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus? A sudden shining on him, brighter than the noonday sun. Another interesting detail from the original language, and you can read the KJV and understand exactly what God would have you to know about that, but we find nuances and shadings of many passages of Scripture when we look at the original language, but the KJV in English is completely sufficient. I want you to know that. But in the Greek language, it was not as rigid about the placement of words as it is in English. We usually have subject, verb, direct object. In Greek, if you wanted to emphasize a point, you could place the word that you emphasize before or at the beginning of the phrase. The very first word in this verse in the Greek is that word for appeared. So what is Paul emphasizing likely in this passage? 
How weird would it sound if we said, appeared the grace of God in salvation to all men? That would be to literally translate it. Printed out the Greek on my outline. That would be to literally translate it as closely as possible, and it wouldn't be a proper sentence in English. But he is emphasizing the fact that God's grace has appeared. And so today we emphasize it to you. God's grace has appeared as an epiphany. It has brought you as the shining of light through darkness. It has brought you salvation, salvation that did teach you some things. A personal teaching, a personal saving grace. God's grace in the new birth has appeared to us, saving us and teaching us. Now lastly, let's look at the teaching. There are two errors on pendulum extremes as it relates to the new birth. One error is that when a person is born again, they suddenly become some sort of a super saint ninja marine creature that can never fall to sin, that never struggles, and if he does, it won't be long. He'll recover himself and he'll be stronger after than he was before. That simply isn't the case. Look at the lives of Samuel and, excuse me, of uh, Samson and David and Lot. Look at the church at Corinth, the church at Laodicea. You have example after example, Solomon, of people in the Word of God who were much stronger in their discipleship when they were young and enthused than they were old and calloused and broken and scarred by their own sin choices. What does David say on his dying bed? Although my house be not so with God, yet he's made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and sure, though he maketh it not to grow. David was a lot stronger as a little boy who threw a rock through the brain of Goliath, who approaches Saul in the cave and cuts off a piece of his clothing instead of killing him as his enemy because he wouldn't lay a hand against the Lord's anointed. That young David was far stronger in his zeal and personal discipleship than the post-Bathsheba David, whose sons committed insurrection and killed one another, and he ends up a shadow of the man that he once was. Dear God, keep us from falling. Pride goes before a fall. And we are all susceptible to that. Now, this isn't one extreme that once you're born again, you never have trouble with the flesh. But there's another extreme. And I will be just as fervent in my condemnation and criticism of it as the first And that extreme is that the new birth makes no difference whatsoever in a person's life. They are in morals and behavior exactly as they were before God's grace ever came into their life. And that is also an extreme. You usually find where people go to one extreme to fight the other. And depending on which person you are the most offended at and arguing with, a person ends up in either of those two camps. And I'm here to tell you, that neither of those positions are biblical and right and true. God's grace has an effect in the heart of a child of God, and because there is an effect on the heart of a child of God and the mind of a child of God, there is an effect in the life of a child of God. And that is biblical. And we need not to shy away from that. It is true. God's grace has brought salvation, and it teaches. What does it teach? Now, I want to consider teaching just a moment. We have five minutes. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, I want to emphasize God teaching. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. What is that? Teaching. God's laws at the new birth are written on your mind and on your heart. In Romans 7, Paul talks about himself before the new birth, and the only way that he would know that it's wrong to sin is because the law told him, thou shalt not. You don't need a law to tell you it's wrong to murder. You don't murder, you don't want to murder, because the grace of God is in your heart crying out to your mind. That law is written on your heart. A sensible conscience is the way that our forefathers would describe it. A conscience that is able to be pricked, that is within a sensible sinner, is another word that they would use. His laws are in your mind, in your heart. And they will all be taught to know Him from the least to the greatest. And I love that phrase, the least. So many of us in this room have lost little ones. They didn't make it into the world. and There can hardly be any worse heartbreak and pain to experience than that. But understand that God's grace is strong enough to reach the least, just as it is the greatest. I imagine there was hardly a greater man in Judaism and eventually in Christianity than the Apostle Paul. But not only does His grace reach the greatest, it reaches the least. Every single child of God will be taught to know Him from the least to the greatest. So that we don't need to teach every man to tell every man and his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. That means it's a teaching that God does that we cannot do. I can teach you about Christ, but I cannot teach you to know Christ. That comes only through grace. Jesus taught this in John chapter 6, quoting the book of Isaiah. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. There is a teaching that only God can do. And God does this teaching in the new birth. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. First of all, God's grace writes the laws, or God writes His laws upon your heart and your mind, and that teaches you some things. If you know now it is wrong to murder, then you're not going to murder, or you're not going to be inclined to do things such as that, because you have a conscience that cries out in agony when you do such things that are sinful. Now, I'm using extreme examples, but lying, mistreating other people, being cruel to other people, stealing from other people, We experience pain in the conscience being regenerated people when we do things that violate the moral law of God because He has taught us in the new birth in writing His laws upon our heart to deny ungodliness. Does that mean that we never commit ungodliness? We've already answered that question. (laughs) Of course we can commit ungodliness because we are not yet glorified and we still have the flesh the nature of the flesh, the nature of Adam. And so even when we would do good, evil is present with us. We struggle. The flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that you cannot do the things that you would, as Galatians 5 says. It's very clear in Scripture that we have a constant warfare in our members. And to successfully fight that warfare... As disciples, we are through the nature of the Spirit, the nature of Christ, the divine nature, to mortify or put to death every single day the nature of the flesh. And so, as Jesus said, we take up our cross, a 
a symbol of execution. As Paul said, we mortify our members. I die daily. We're called into that battle to fight. Grace has taught us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Do we always deny ungodliness and worldly lusts? No, we don't. We fail and we fall. But we've been taught by grace to that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, I want to emphasize a word as we come near to the close of our thoughts today, and that is the word growth. A baby is alive. A baby is hungry. A baby is thirsty. But a baby doesn't have the strength to fight off an attacker. A baby doesn't have the strength to fight a warfare. What does the baby have to do? It has to grow. If we want to be successful in denying ungodliness and worldly lust, to live soberly, righteous, and godly in this present world, then we ought to take the Word of God and ingest it, the sincere milk of the Word, that we might grow thereby. And as we grow, as we ingest the Word of God, we find more strength to deny ungodliness, more strength to deny worldly lusts, more strength to live soberly, more strength to live righteously and godly in this present world. Let me emphasize that a moment. There's coming a world in which you will be raised incorruptible to live in, and it will not be a struggle for you anymore to deny ungodliness, but you will be conformed to the image of Jesus, completely righteous, glorified. And it won't be a struggle in that world. But in this world, we struggle. And the key to growth is ingesting the nutrients that we need to grow thereby. To find the strength to fight sin in our own personal lives. And lastly, looking for that glorious, that blessed hope and that glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is what we'll talk about next week. But to bring our thoughts to a close today, when a child of God is born of the Spirit, he no longer fits in in this world. Now, I want to talk directly to your heart this morning. We so often look to the things of this world, fixing them, making them the way that they ought to be, to find satisfaction. If we can only get the right elected officials, if we can only have the right foreign policy, if we can only have the right domestic policy. There's a reason you're not happy in this world. Because you don't belong to it. And the new birth sparked in you is a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and a yearning for deliverance. Read Hebrews chapter 11 and the way that they wandered as strangers and pilgrims. They roamed around this country as people who were refugees. And it says, of whom the world was not worthy. There's a reason you're not happy in this world. It's because you're not meant to be here. You have a home and a yearning for that home in the heavens made without hands is sparked in you the moment that the Lord Jesus Christ takes up residence in your heart. Every child of God yearns on some level for this deliverance. Oh, we might numb ourselves to it. I was talking with a preacher this past week on how easy we have it in this country today. He said, you know, in the middle of a pandemic... In a shutdown, partially, and it's not shut down in Alabama, it hasn't been for several months, but the point he made was, you get fried chicken delivered to your front door. You got a virtual reality game system. I was telling him about how I can exercise in my kitchen, and it looks like I'm in a totally different place 
You get that delivered to your house in the middle of a pandemic and can exercise in your home. We numb ourselves with the things of this world so much that sometimes we think it's not really that bad. I can tolerate a little more here. When in reality, we ought to look around at all the suffering and the chaos and the confusion and say, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Do you yearn to be delivered from this sinful world, this chaos, this disappointment? That feeling in you is of God. You have been taught to look for the glorious appearing of the great God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for teaching us things that we could not learn from men. You've taught us to know You. You've written Your law upon our hearts and our mind and our inward parts. You've caused us to regret things that we do that are sinful and to yearn for righteousness and even greater, Lord, to yearn for the second coming of your Son. We pray, Father, as John concluded the book of Revelation, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Save us, deliver us from this world and all of its trouble. Thank you, Lord, for this congregation that's gathered here today and for all who've watched online. We pray that you bless them and keep them. And now deliver us safely home is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.